Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing today? Alert and awake. Excellent. Just wanted to give a big thank you to everyone who uh, participated in the biblical dinner last night. Bob and Jackie for your preparation and the delivery of the message. And to all who cooked and prepped and served and cleaned up and, and for attending because then it gave opportunity for service. So thanks to everyone who was part of that. It was a blessed night and uh, just a, a great time to really rejoice in the love of our Savior. And it's great to, to spend time together and to experience His love in person. So thank you for all who were part of that. Um, just a friendly reminder as well for parents to pick up their kids directly following the service, sign them out. It's a big help to the ministry team with those uh, kids. And uh, just there is going to be a time change next week. So I think with our phones now, it kind of just does it for you. But uh, so you're out of excuses. But uh, this is the one that you don't want to miss because you'll be late, like an hour late. The other one, it just seems like you're extremely pious. You're there an hour early and ready to pray. So um, make a note of that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you are our refuge, that you do send your spirit to come upon us, to fill us with your presence and to guide us into all truth and to remind us of the things that Jesus has said. And thank you, Lord, that we remember you and we consider you because you are alive and you are coming. And so, Lord, we look to you today with expectant hearts. We come before you hungry and thirsty, needy, needing to hear you speak, needing to hear you um, direct us and guide us through this life, to sustain us, to encourage us, to rebuke us, to edify us. And I pray that we would receive your truth today, that you'd be glorified through the preaching of your word, that we would draw near to you with uh, just humble hearts to receive your truth and make us fruitful, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Ecclesiastes 7, starting in verse 7. Um, of all the creatures God has made, only man has the capacity for wisdom. Because true wisdom, it comes from God, and it's only available through faith in him that we can walk wisely. I like the uh, Webster 1828 dictionary. He defines wisdom as the right use or exercise of knowledge, the faculty of discerning or judging what is most just, proper, and useful, the knowledge and use of what is best, most just, most proper, most conductive to prosperity or happiness. So, I mean, that's what we want. That is what we need, a life walking in wisdom. And we see that wisdom provides present benefits as well as eternal blessings. But though we are given wisdom, it does not follow we always walk wisely. The, the wise can make foolish choices. And knowing what's good and what's right and what's most beneficial doesn't mean we always go that way, right? We can be our what we know to be right can be overridden in a moment by our feelings, our, our desires, or a sinful influence. And when we neglect to make pleasing God our primary aim, we're not walking in wisdom. We cannot walk in wisdom. And in that moment, the wise can make a greater fool of themselves than the most foolish because we know better. Because he's given us his presence, he's given us his word, and he's empowered us to walk wisely. And so when we recognize our folly. It's something to repent of, to look to the Lord again, to walk in wisdom. Now, King Solomon is a great example of this because God gave him more wisdom than anyone else that was before him or since. 
yet he was far from being perfect. He had wisdom from God, but in his flesh, we see he was incapable of being wise and staying wise. This would really be discouraging if it weren't for Jesus, who is wisdom for us. It's the one who recognizes their folly, repents and forsake it. That's the one who's walking in wisdom. That is the wise person. The one who realizes that they have ceased trusting God, that they have started looking to themselves, that they have gone from God to recognize that that is wisdom. And then to walk and do what God says, that is also wisdom. So Solomon's foolish choices, it wasn't that God's wisdom was faulty or it failed him, but Solomon was the weak link. Yet our, in our weakness, the Lord, he is our strength. So we have confidence in him, Christ, who is wisdom for us. So in this passage, Solomon continues to uh, talk about the benefits of wisdom in the here and now. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 7. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Because our flesh is weak, because we are uh, easily swayed by how we're feeling, um, we can start focusing on things that are passing away, things that do not matter in the light of eternity. In the movie, Pollyanna, there was a girl, she had a positive view for everything. You know, she was always playing the glad game, looking on the bright side of everything, but she suffered this serious fall and was paralyzed. And when she was hurting, she wouldn't play the glad game anymore. She couldn't see the good in her situation. And Solomon observed that when good people are oppressed or exploited, it can impact their thinking. So even the wise can be affected by oppression, by struggles, by pains. And he says, it's like a bribe that's given to pervert justice where someone's given a bribe and they look the other way doing, they, they compromise their values. And so we know to walk in wisdom. We know to be looking to the Lord, but when we're oppressed and we don't seek the Lord's strength, well, it's like a bribe to us. It turns us from the Lord. And it's only by faith in God that we can overcome this natural tendency towards corruption, towards self focus and pride. And as James writes, the trying of our faith produces patience. That's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And by God's grace, many proud souls have been added to the kingdom and found patience in the Lord in the end. And so what hope we have in him. And he also cautions readers not to be quick to anger. One who's volatile, easily angered, choosing folly. That's living as if God doesn't exist. That's one way to describe a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So that God doesn't have power in this situation, that God doesn't really exist. That's the way of the fool. And sometimes we can have that outlook where we look at a situation and we don't bring God's power and his promises to bear on that situation. A fool will allow anger to reside in his heart. It's like when, when you recognize anger in your heart, we need to send it packing, send it marching, send it out. It doesn't have to remain there anymore. It doesn't have to abide in us. And so the question is, does anger have a place of rest in our heart? A place where it has its own little abode. Just like the, um, 
where Solomon's temple was, uh, there were people living in it. I'm forgetting the name of the guy, but in the book of Neb- uh, Nehemiah, um, Tobiah was living. So this guy that was an enemy of Israel was living in the temple in one of the rooms where the supplies were supposed to be kept. And Nehemiah saw it. He's like, get this guy out of here. And he threw all his stuff out. And when we have anger in our hearts, it's like, get out. You do not belong here. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within me. We ought to treat anger like the vermin that may try to live in your garage or is scurrying in the attic. You know, they're not content to just stay in the attic. They're going to gnaw their way into your dwelling place and into your room and into your pantries and start wreaking havoc in your life. And that's what anger does to us. So it's like, don't let them breed. Don't let them hang out. You got to get rid of that anger and pride. There should be no comfortable inviting place for that to live within us. And as the past may anger us, there could be things in our past that are hurtful, that, that anger us when we think about them and dwell upon them. He says, he also cautions against looking back to the past with longing that you go, oh, why isn't it as good now as it used to be? Hindsight may be 2020, but a selfish, um, discontented outlook, it's blind because it doesn't factor God into the equation. Looking back, we have a selective memory. Have you noticed that? Like the children of Israel, when they're in the wilderness and God's feeding them, he's providing for them. What were they thinking about? What were they lusting over? The food in Egypt. Like, oh, the leeks and the onions. Wasn't life grand back then where we could just eat whatever we wanted? Now it's just manna every day. It's ironic because they looked back upon this romantic ideal selectively forgetting about the oppression and the beatings and the, the killing of their children and the impossible hand they were dealt where they said, okay, bake bricks, but you get, we don't supply you straw anymore. And if you don't make your quota, we're going to beat you. They forgot all about that, but they looked back with longing. It was foolish to look back favorably upon a season of slavery when they wisely should have looked to God who presently had saved them and was providing for them. And whenever we see an example like this, know that you're looking at a mirror. You're looking at yourself. You're like, you know, these guys have a short-term memory, and so do I, about the goodness of God because of my current struggle. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun for wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Solomon says that wisdom is good and profitable with an inheritance. An inheritance will not be wasted if it's used wisely, unlike the prodigal who wasted it all. And God's wisdom far outweighs money because wisdom is the true wealth. It endures beyond this life. And he says, he described money as a defense. We can think of it in that term because it will afford, we can afford security measures or buying insurance, access to healthcare, legal support. So it can defend us in one sense. I read that the Australian government is slated to spend about $50 billion on defense in the next year. All this money spent on defense can only defend life. It cannot give life. And that's where wisdom exceeds because it gives life to those who have it. It's actually life-giving. 
Throughout the book of Proverbs, wisdom's personified as a woman crying aloud for all to hear, to come and to eat uh, in a feast. For instance, in Proverbs chapter nine, it says that wisdom has, she has built her house, prepared a feast, baked bread, poured wine, sent out her maidservants with an invitation and says, eat bread, drink and live. And this wisdom is pointing to Christ who is wisdom for us. He is the revelation of God who saves and gives life to all who receive him. He is the living bread who's come down from heaven. He is the one who has shed his blood to redeem us. We see in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, but of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And as children of God, we are in Christ. He is wisdom for us and we have life through him. He gives us life and he guides us to walk in his abundant life that he's provided. So we glory in him. We make him our boast. Verse 13, consider the work of God for who can make straight what he has made crooked in the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Mankind is notorious for twisting or distorting what God has made straight. God makes the standard and we deviate from that standard and justify ourselves. But no one can make straight what he has made crooked. Crooked here, it means to bend, to falsify or suppress. The stones that uh, were written upon by the finger of God, the 10 commandments. They're called the work of God. And so Solomon says, consider the work of God in Exodus 32, 16 says, now the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So God's commands that forbade murder, adultery, stealing, um, lying, they're engraved forever. These are crooked things that cannot be made straight. It doesn't matter how many people are lying or how many people are coveting or falling into idolatry and promoting it as good. It could never be straight because God has already made that standard. No one can make straight what he has made crooked and our preference, our opinions. It does not change what God has said and exposure to the Bible. It shows us how much not, we are not like God because we tend to do everything that he says is sinful. That's our natural inclination. So no government legislation can influence or change God's righteousness or his laws to justify thieves or liars before the king of kings. Jesus is the judge of all the earth. All will answer before him. Every word will be brought into judgment. He's given us the standard. And God can do what we can't because through the gospel, the most crooked, corrupt people can be made upright and righteous by faith in him. So God is able to redeem. He is able to restore. He's able to change people who are crooked, fundamentally broken and crooked and make us straight and upright for his glory. We read in verse, verse 14 that there's a day of prosperity and a day of adversity, both appointed by God. And it's wise to see them both as appointed by God. Like we have an appointment. You make an appointment for something. Well, God's like, here's a day of prosperity for you. And here's a day of adversity for you. And we should be joyful in the day of prosperity. 
Yet we ought not despair in adversity because the Lord rules over all our days. He has them numbered. He knows what he is accomplishing. He has good and redemptive purposes in everything he allows. And it's faith in him that enables us to say amen to that and to say, yes, even if I can't see it, I know that's true because the, the God that I know is good. The God that's revealed in scripture, he is wise. All wisdom and life and goodness come from him. It's easy to see how prosperity benefits us, like having health or a good business or um, wealth. But God, he, will, he is able to prosper our souls in adversity. And earlier in this same chapter, he said the day of mourning is better than the day of feasting because that's an opportunity to build character, that you would be considering your mortality, that you would be looking to the Lord. Because if we would be honest, when do we seek the Lord more fervently when everything is perfectly fine and we can almost live as if God doesn't exist or when we're hurting or in trouble or in pain and we're desperate, we need God to do something. That day of adversity is when we often look to him, people of faith and adversity. It teaches us that nothing is certain in this life. It prompts us to look to the Lord who is wise and good, knowing our future is safe with him. Verse 15, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this, and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. Solomon had made many observations over the years. He saw God-fearing people die young. He saw people in wickedness flourish and outlive them. And that was at odds with the assumptions that people had in that day. Like in Job's day, that it was kind of an, a karma idea that if you do good things, you'll be benefited by good. And, and uh, like you'll be rewarded according to how you live. And if you've done something bad, well, you must have done something bad to deserve it. The disciples thought that as well. And Jesus corrected them and said, no, it's, it's not that this man or his parents sinned, that he was made blind, but that the works of God could be shown in him. So this idea of karma or fate, it's man's wisdom. It's foolish in God's sight. It is a heresy that denies God's grace, his mercy, and his redemptive plans. It makes man his own deliverer by his own efforts. So Solomon, he, he's urging, and again, he's talking about life under the sun. It's important we keep that in context, that he's saying, embrace a balanced life. Don't be given to extremes. Because obsessing over your own faults, that can lead to destructive mental problems. A, a hedonistic life where you're pursuing all the pleasures of the flesh, that can lead to physical problems. So avoid these extremes. And he's not encouraging disobedience to God or downplaying the value of righteousness, but he's observed that absolute perfection is unattainable and folly at times is unavoidable. So that's his point of emphasis. If you make absolute perfection, your aim, you're sure to miss. So choose obtainable goals instead. Better to start in the gym with light weight and build up some strength and, and increase the weight rather than stacking all of the weights on the bench at once and just crushing yourself because you just can't lift it. So that's, that's what he's saying here. Now, while there's value in finding 
a balance in life between responsibility and privilege, work and play, the fear of God and obedience to him, that is our primary purpose. Some people have been called too smart for their own good because they use their, their smarts uh, to do evil and think they could not be caught, that they just can get away with anything, even before God and exposing their folly. And I do not believe it's possible with the lens of the New Testament that we have to be too wise or too righteous because righteousness is a standing we have by God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's made us righteous. Jesus is for us wisdom. He doesn't give his spirit by degrees. We have the fullness of the spirit. We are called to live up to the standard of righteousness that we have received by faith in Jesus. Jesus didn't lower his conduct because of the people he's around. He's like, you know, I don't want to be too righteous today. I don't want to be too pious or too holy because there's people here it could offend. Never, never. He was always righteous, completely righteous in his standing with God and in his uh, demeanor and his deeds. He was righteous. He lived righteously. In fact, Jesus was seen as unbalanced by some people because he feared God and obeyed him. So Mark three, verse 20 says, then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him for they said he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said he has Beelzebub and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Isn't it ironic how wrong people were about Jesus? His own people are like, he's gone mad. He's gone crazy. And then the, uh, the, his enemies are like, oh, he's possessed by Satan. He's, he's able to deal with demons by demonic power. And this is because he was doing righteousness. He was living righteously. A similar thing happened to Paul in Acts chapter 26, verse 24. It says, now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Paul was knowledgeable. He was passionate about preaching Christ, his resurrection from the dead and the gospel. And in the eyes of Festus, though, he's written off as being mad, insane. Like you've been in the books too long, Paul. You've just gone nutty. You're not making any sense. He's like, no, hold on. I am speaking the truth and wisdom. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 26, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. He's saying how dreadful, what a pity. Alas, when all speak well of you, because that's the treatment false prophets have received. As Christians born again by the gospel, made righteous through faith in Christ, there ought to be a difference between our manner of life our manner of speaking, our manner of responding to trials and adversity in our lives. We shouldn't have the same speech or values or priorities of those in the world who seek approval and the acceptance of men. And it would be a pity to miss out on eternal rewards because we've been content with men's praise and we haven't sought the approval and praise of God. We're not to try to find middle ground with the wisdom of the world but to trust and obey and honor Jesus, even if people think you're crazy for it. Jesus, they thought he was crazy. They thought Paul was crazy. We're to avoid what's wicked, 
Even if the world celebrates it, we are to do what's good. Even if it seems extreme, we ought to live up to the standard of Christ's righteousness to the degree that other Christians think we are a bit extreme. Our motive not to impress them or belittle them or to shame them or to make a name for ourselves, but so Jesus would be glorified and his name exalted. Let us live righteously as he does. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 19. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than 10 rulers of the city. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. When I was a little kid, it felt very empowering to have your parent on your side. Like it didn't matter if it was about a, an argument or what's right or wrong or with a teacher or with kids on the playground. If you, if you knew that someone in your life with authority that you respected had your back, you felt, I won't say invincible, but you felt vindicated. You felt very strong in your opinion because you knew what was right. I had a teacher in public school who was a believer, um, caution me against passing out printed uh, materials with Bible verses. I was giving out these little Bibles or writing. It was Valentine's day and I was writing a Bible verse on each one. And she's like, you know, I don't know if you should be doing that. But my parents had pulled me aside at one stage and said, as a student in the state, you have the right to speak about Jesus as much as you want. Your teachers, it's a public school. They can't talk about Jesus openly, but you can. And so I was like, right. Okay. I can. And I felt like it's the right thing to do before God. It's, the, it's, I'm, it's legal under the law and it's something Jesus would approve of. So I felt very good about writing those verses. And so he says here, if a man had 10 rulers of the city siding with him in a legal matter, he could know that he's on the right side of the law. He could have confidence to move ahead, knowing that it was all legitimate. Uh, and we see this with Boaz when he took legal action to marry Ruth, the Moabitess. It says in Ruth 4 that he rounded up 10 elders of the city in Bethlehem to hear his case. He presented the one kinsman who was nearer to Naomi than he. And the 10 elders witnessed the removal of the sandal, handing it to Boaz, and by him receiving it, he was legally buying uh, Elimelech's land, and he was also taking Ruth as his wife to raise up an heir for the family inheritance. So he had total confidence that he could take possession of the land. He wasn't stealing anything and he could take Ruth as wife. He's not committing adultery or sinning in any way that they are now husband and wife because he received that sandal and the witness of all these elders. Solomon said, wisdom strengthens the wise man more than 10 rulers of the city. You know, even if all the rulers of the city disagree, a wise man is strengthened by wisdom to do what's right. You don't need 10 people backing you to do what's right because Christ is wisdom for us. Christ is our strength. He's the one who helps us and guides us into all truth. And since Jesus has become wisdom for us, Solomon's almost understating it a bit because Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What strength we have in Christ to do what's right. Though knowledgeable and skilled to interpret the law, these 10 rulers of the city, none of them was without sin. They all had their faults. 
They all fell short of the perfect standard of the law. They all made mistakes. And in light of our own faults, we ought to extend mercy and grace to others, even as we've received it freely from the Lord. And he says, don't take to heart everything people say about you. Instead of being furious or resentful when you hear a servant cursing you or a coworker or your child or your parents or that guy on the street, know that you too have cursed others inside. He says, know you're in your heart. You may not have said it out loud, but no, you have done the exact same thing. There's a great book, Lectures to My Students by C.H. Spurgeon, and he has a chapter that's dedicated to this verse. Uh, and the, the, the subject of the chapter is the blind eye and the deaf ear. He says, you cannot stop people's tongues, and therefore the best thing is to stop your own ears and never mind what is spoken. You may say what you please, but I will only hear what I choose. One way you can tell if you've taken these words to heart is that you think about them, they bother you, and you are apt to repeat them. Those, those things show that you've got something eating away at you that now it's coming out of your mouth. You're, you're talking about it to other people. And in doing so, you can do worse than the original offense because not only are we obligated to take that person aside and speak to them if we've heard them cursing us, according to Matthew 18, we have chosen to be a gossip on top of being disobedient. So we need to make sure that our hearts are right. So it's one thing to hear them curse you or to hear them say bad things about you, just slander you. But are we someone who's going to repeat a matter? Proverbs 16, 28, it says, a perverse man sows strife and a whisperer separates the best of friends. The way we respond to offense, regardless of who's in the right, it exposes the truth about us. There was another section where Spurgeon said, have you not by this time discovered that flattery as, is as injurious as it is pleasant? It softens the mind and makes you more sensitive to slander. In proportion as praise pleases you, censure will pain you. So if you've developed a bit of an appetite for flattery, know it's making you increasingly sensitive to negative things people say about you. Sensitivity to slights, offhand comments, as well as cursing, it shows you're taking to heart too much what other people say. Instead, let's dwell on what the Lord has said. Let's take his promises and his comfort to heart. So you don't have to take cursing to heart. It doesn't have to bother you. It doesn't have to make you furious and angry and retaliate. We can not take the high road, but take the road of wisdom, the way that Christ has led us. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 23. All this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Solomon, is, Solomon was given greater wisdom and knowledge than men, but he realized even his wisdom had a limit. He says, I went looking for wisdom, but I wasn't able to find it. There was an end to my wisdom. And he was, it wasn't by a lack of effort. He's like, I determined to search out, to seek, to find this wisdom. I want to know, search, seek out wisdom and find out the reason of things. And we know that he had great wisdom. 
In 1 Kings 4.32, it says he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So he had this practical wisdom, vast wisdom. He had wisdom about cedars that were in Lebanon, trees, uh, fish, things that were hidden, things that weren't on the surface. He had looked into them. He understood them. We may have one or two catchphrases or cliches that we're known for. He spoke over 3,000 proverbs. You just bring them up. Like, wow. He wrote 1,005 songs. This guy was brilliant. He was sharp. He had carefully observed all these facts about creatures. Every king that heard of him came to see him. It was like, well, I'll meet Solomon someday. He'll, he'll have to come here for me to meet him. They were, they were going to see Solomon. Despite all their wealth and the wisdom they possessed, they were looking for him because he was just amazingly wise. But there was a lot Solomon didn't know. There was a lot he didn't understand. And how could he know what he didn't know? There were things he couldn't make sense of, like the stupidity of wickedness, the madness of folly. He's like, I'm trying to figure out why this happens, but I can't. And one thing he discovered that bewildered him and embittered him was the seductive woman. One that's personified through Proverbs 1 through 9, enticing men to turn from the way. In Proverbs 7, there's a great example. He observes a young man. Maybe he was that man one time or many times, approached by a woman who's dressed provocatively. She hugs him. She flatters him. She makes him feel special. She offers easy sex, free sex with no strings attached. And it says he went after her like an ox goes to the slaughter. He just was like an animal running right into the snare. It was like the the, the uh, buck that's feeding in the meadow didn't see the arrow coming that went right through his liver. He didn't know it was going to cost him his life. He was seduced by deceit and flattery. Her eyes and her smile led him away and he couldn't help himself. He was a sucker for a pretty face and sweet talk. He was unable to outwit the woman despite his wisdom whose heart was full of traps he couldn't see or avoid. There were these snares laid for him, and he just couldn't figure it out with all of his wisdom. And instead of heeding his own advice and saving his love for one wife, he loved many wives that led him astray. It says in 1 Kings 11, 3 and 4, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. And you may think that Solomon was living the good life with his wealth, and he has his palace and women, but it was more like a fancy prison that he had made for himself, a kind of hell that he could not escape from because he was ensnared to turn away from the living God. It's a problem in his own heart. It was not the women. It was him. His heart was deceived and turned aside from the Lord. Verse 27. Here is what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, 
but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly, this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Solomon's looking for upright people, and he says they are exceedingly hard to find. Very rare. Job, he's described as an upright man, one who feared God and hated evil. From a thousand men that Solomon found, he was one that seemed upright. And I guarantee if he looked a little closer and got to know the man a little better, he would uh, change his assessment. Go Well, he's not as upright as I thought he was. He seemed upright from a distance, but getting a little closer, nah, he doesn't measure up. And he's implying here that among his a thousand wives, he did not find one who was upright. Combination probably of his jaded perspective or his taste and his choices in the ones he married. This is not an indictment against women at all or the morality of women in general. He's speaking from his own experience. He's looking for love and devotion in a spouse where he has spread his love over a whole bunch of them. He was unwise to go beyond one wife. And in that, he, he destroyed himself by turning from the Lord. His harem could not supply the upright com companion. And had he found one, I believe Solomon would have been a wicked influence upon her because of his own heart. This is our condition. You can have wisdom, but it doesn't mean you're going to walk in wisdom. We need Christ as our wisdom to guide us into truth, to lead us in his ways so my heart isn't full of snares and nets that I'm laying for myself. He was looking for upright people. He was disillusioned when he could not find them. But even so, if we look to Job, was he sinless? No, he had sin. It didn't see he was upright, not because he was without sin. It's because he feared God and trusted in him. That's what made him upright. That's how he had that righteous standing with God. What Solomon didn't realize is that uprightness, it comes by faith in God, not by knowledge or morality or ethics or good works. So why don't we turn, we'll close here in Hebrews 12 verse 1. When we look around at this world, we look at people in this world or people in the church, it can be it can, we can feel disillusioned because we're not seeing the uprightness that we hope to see. We're looking for perfection where we will never find it. We can also become depressed by our own shortcomings and sin. Instead of being focused on our faults or trying to look for perfection in others, we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is wisdom for us. He is our living example of what wisdom is. Hebrews 12 verse one, it says, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin, which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him, who had endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Hebrews 11 is full of people God describes as upright 
because they trusted in him. That's the hall of faith, right? There's a list of all these people, people that have even been maligned. These are people God does not malign. He looks upon their faith and he says, this is an example of how you're to live. Celebrate this. This is what walking in faith looks like. There's no criticism or faults of them, but a celebration of faith we should emulate. Solomon was weary and discouraged by the limits of his wisdom, by the schemes of man, by the things he could not know, by those snares he couldn't save himself from. But we, we can be strengthened. We can be encouraged by remembering our upright Lord and Savior, Jesus, and not just remember him as if what did he do, but to consider him, consider him now as he is living, listening, saving, delivering a present help in time of trouble, our refuge to whom we run. And we can be numbered among God's upright ones by faith in Jesus as we lay aside. So by faith in him and by faith in him, we lay aside the weights, the sin that uh, ensnares us and run with endurance the race God has set before us with freedom, with rejoicing. So do you find yourself weary or discouraged today? Weary or discouraged because of the world or by the problems you see and there's no solution? Well, let's look to Jesus. He's the one, the, our author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And if Jesus is wisdom for us, he is with us, who can stand before us on this pilgrimage to glory? Because there he is and he's returning. And when it comes down to it, the biggest hindrance to us walking wisely is us. The biggest hindrance for me walking wisely is me and the biggest difficulty or the biggest challenge that you will face in your life to walk wisely is you. But in Jesus, we have hope. We have wisdom more than we could ever need. We need to choose to walk in his ways and to trust him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Jesus being wisdom for us. That in ourselves, there is no good thing. That we are sinners. We have sinned and we do sin. We may even curse others. We might fall prey to all manner of temptation. But Lord, you are above all that. You have conquered sin and death. You have risen from the grave, immortal and glorified. And you call us to follow you, to seek you, to repent of our sins, to confess them and to forsake them to do the things that please you. And I pray you would help us to do that, Lord, that you would recognize, you would show us, Lord, our folly of how we've turned from you or how we've looked to the world for what only you can supply. We have valued the opinions of others or our own feelings over what you have said. And I pray that you would help us to walk in alignment with your truth, to be those with a humble heart who come before you uh, who are not angry or longing for the past, who are not dissatisfied with the present or afraid of the future, but to look to you, to rejoice in you, and to walk in wisdom, to be upright as you've called us to be. Lord, I pray that we would live righteously, that we would bring you honor and praise, and that you'd help us every step and help us to run this race that you've set before us with endurance, whether it's a day of prosperity or a day of adversity. And thank you, Lord, that you are with us. You will never leave or forsake us and that Jesus is our wisdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.